welcome to Hero with a Thousand Potions, a gaming podcast where two 30-something gamers examine the storytelling and gameplay of popular and niche RPGs. It's like a book club with hero portraits. This is season one, and we're talking about Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition. My name is Tyler, and I'm joined by my friend Nate. We invite you to join us on this adventure by playing Xenoblade alongside these episodes, in which we will explore Xenoblade chapter by chapter. And in this episode, we are getting into chapter six. Nate, how are we doing tonight? We're doing good. Our last episode we recorded and edited, I had a really chunky voice. I had it. I sounded like I was talking through an amp. We've spent a fair amount of time experimenting with our audio settings, so I'm hoping to everybody who toughed out that episode and is still with us that we sound better today. Yeah, we've been reevaluating our uh, sound acquisition technology. We're we're doing our best here because I'm I'm living in a military house, which is a downsizing of about 900 square feet from where I was before. So I'm sitting in a small little corner desk that doubles as my gaming station and working station as well. And that is not one computer. That is two computers jammed right next to each other. And so I have a mic, like $40 mic sitting on top of a World of Warcraft Shadowlands box to get it up to my face because that's the best I can do here for now. Maybe someday in our future, I will have one of those little hanging boom mics with the sound dampener and all the cool gadgets and everything. But for now, we're, we just want to get out there and we want to talk about this game. So we figured, what the hell, let's go for it. And we'll, we'll learn as we go. So uh, hopefully we're figuring it out and the quality is getting better and better. Yes. Likewise, I have a firebox, like a, a security fireproof case that is uh, uplifting my microphone as well. I think it would be nice to have one of those dangling guys, but uh, not yet. It is taking up a little bit of space on my desk, but I appreciate it because I'm not uh, turning my neck down. Anyways, not enough of that, but uh, let's get let's get right to business here. So here we are in chapter six. The Talethia, the large crystal dragon-like thing, flew off and we got to see this, uh, this mysterious man who's got some other scenario. We don't know his name. We don't know much about him. And we're back to the team. We've got Shulk, Ryan, Charla, uh, Atheron, Juju, and Dunbin and Dixon. We've got a we've got the dream team all together here, and we're kind of um, picking up the pieces of the battle and talking with one another again. Yeah, yeah. Well, quick question for you, Tyler. I sent you the the picture from the culmination or the finale of the Xenoblade uh, Chronicles three trailer. Was that a giant Telethia head, or was it something else? It it had the maw, like the snout of the Telethia, but we know very little about Telethias. Um, it it did look kind of glaciated that that um that Titan um in the trailer too, and so I don't know, could it be a baby Titan? Yeah, that's what makes it fun playing new games and being in this speculative phase before you know the answer to all the lore and everything like that, because it it's just so much fun to speculate and see things and be like, oh, what the hell is that? And I, I'm feeling good about the last few chapters of this game kind of drip feeding big moments like that to us. So it, it's exciting. And that's why it, it, I send stuff like that to you. I'm like, wait, what is this? You know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, we're getting started with the plan on where we go next. The, the group is talking about going after metal face. He just made his appearance. They, they were talking about going after him and there he was. He just shocked the group immediately by showing his big metal face to them and then jetted off as Shulk got a decisive cut into his armor. So they're contemplating following after him and they they drop a lot of information on what that would entail 
One of our one of our heroes asks, you know, what was that thing? And Dixon identifies it as a Telethia, a mythic beast protecting Bionis. And I have to ask myself, from what? We've established that Telethia is a mythic beast protecting Bionis, according to Dixon, and that maybe the next um, order of business is to siege the Mechon base at Sword Valley. It's called Galahad Fortress. Um, in the meanwhile, during this conversation, uh, Atheron says that he was at that Battle of Sword Valley too a year ago. So we have got a lot of players uh, in this in this battle here. But Shulk senses something is more important. Um, he doesn't really want to head to Galahad Fortress right away. He recites his vision that we saw at the end of the last uh, episode, and Dixon deduces that this obelisk black tower thing that he saw probably is located at Prison Island on. Bionis's head, which, according to Dixon, was built by the High Entia, H-I-G-H space E-N-T-I-A, the High Entia, an ancient race native to Bionis. Yeah, they ask about the High Entia and, you know, there's other races on Bionis and what does that mean? And Dixon tells us we're not the only race on Bionis. So, Obviously, that's true. We've we've met the Nopon, and there's various monsters, but I'm sure they're talking about intelligent races that interact and have societies of sorts. We've also met the Turkin, so I I don't know if you would consider Turkin on that same level. They seem to be organized, but there are a lot of races on Bionis, and he mentions that the Hyantia was one of them. They were an ancient race that have since retreated from the mainlands they used to occupy more of bionis but now they live up towards the head he has also mentioned that he's met high entia in the past this is this giving a lot of layers to or or depth to dixon's well of experiences he's coming off as more well-traveled and explorative than we previously knew him to be he he comes off as uh, a knowledgeable old man but also his kind of hippie garb to me makes him seem a little more carefree to where i don't necessarily picture him previously as this well of knowledge on bionis lore he he just as well could have been like a master roshi character just kind of hanging out and whips out his superpowers when he needs to but that's about it yeah, I, I want to uh, reiterate that uh, well-traveled bit. I'm, I forget who it is exactly, but uh, someone asks, well, how is it that you met a Hyentia? And his answer is, well, I can say I'm well-traveled, which is suspicious as fuck. Yeah, I, I have that same note here. There's a few different details that are adding up to things here with Dixon raising some questions for me. The first off is we don't really get an answer for why are Dixon and Dunbin here? What prompted them to set out on a journey to save the group? They say that, you know, they showed up to help and then the the Telethia steps in and saves everyone anyway. And they even kind of admit that they didn't do much to save them, that it was the Telethia. So the question was, why were these guys here? Did they leave Colony 9? You know, it was in a susceptible position. That question really wasn't answered at any point for me. Also, in addition to that, uh, Dunbin tells us that Dixon crafted a, looks like a kind of samurai saber for him, but he crafted it out of mechon parts. That's, I know we've collected mechon parts before and crafted things out of it, but this sword is so powerful using mechon parts that it can cut mechon as well. Dunbin can do damage to these things instead of the one point of damage using this sword. So Dixon being able to craft such a weapon also gives this idea of a deeper well of experience. Otherwise, you know, everybody would have these kinds of things. The entire armies, there'd be blacksmiths crafting mechon cutting weapons all the time if it really mattered. 
but the last thing for me, the, the mention of his experience and having met Hyantia and knowing all of these different details about Bionis and being well-traveled. I don't know about you, Tyler, but I, I'm going to go with a prediction. I think Dixon is a Hyantia hiding out amongst the Homs. What do you think about that? Oh, man. Oh, man. That's amazing. Uh, that is not a theory that I've crafted in my head. Um, if that were the case, I would wonder if, oh, my God, what if what if behind that ba- that bandana, he's hiding like some third eye or a a signifying mark of the high that is what that was basically lying in plain sight all along. Tyler, that is the exact note I have under <laughs> My prediction line, I have it written, Dixon is a high entia hiding out amongst the Homs for reasons. And then my next sentence is, underneath that headband is a third eyeball or ancient crystal or something. Wow. Um, We talked on an earlier episode on how we we knew we were going to get some sort of origin story for the headband. It, it's going to be important. It It's going to be an important element of his character. So now I, I guarantee you something's lurking under there. I think it would be funny if we get to the end of the game, there's no headband reveal, and it's just two 30-something gamers obsessing about this dude's headband. Yeah, and it's yeah, it definitely could be his garb, his signature look of being this... 60s early 70s hippie guy uh big on smoking some sort of uh, plant native to bionis i guess yeah, what's in this shit man mostly maui wowie man yeah but it's got some labrador in it what's labrador it's dog shit but also gave me a little bit of a creepy guy layer too when he greeted the party he greeted charla he said something along the lines of like what's a pretty young thing doing with these losers and so i i don't know mm-hmm. he- yeah, I, I take offense to that because we've been we've been grappling with giant spiders faced mechons which are basically the most dangerous thing on the in all of existence right now as far as we can tell and and he's just gonna call us losers what the what the come on man give us a little credit he's trying to psych himself up to seem like to charlotte like hey i'm the real deal you don't want to be with these kids i don't know but he's now got a, a creepy old man aspect of his character now too so again that's until he started dropping these lore bombs i was picturing him as more of the like carefree old guy that's just seen he's seen a lot of stuff but he doesn't really take it too seriously but the the way in which he describes things i, I think he's got more to him absolutely and and we will have more suspicions of that later um so uh circling back to the team's plans the head is significant because shulk and dixon both suspect that the key to um, obtaining the power to defeat faced mechons will be at the mechonis head and so we're not headed to galahad fortress we're going to ascend um we're going to go past sword valley and keep ascending up the titan's body to go to the head and the first step to get there is to get through satoral marsh a marshland which is just uh, through a pass on the other side of colony six and the way in which this was described it 
it made it seem like the entire game is going to be getting to the head. I don't suspect that that's going to be the case, but they just keep dropping these things of like, well, we're on the leg and then we need to go around the belt and then we need to go up the back and then around this. And it gave me this feeling. It's like, well, wow, is that like eight chapters away? We're getting to the head now, but we progress at a fairly decent pace. That said, we got bogged down in the marsh for quite a bit. I think you and I spent five hours of gameplay there. So not an insignificant amount of time for sure, but still I found by the end of the chapter we had progressed a little bit further than I was expecting. Yeah, this I think I spent the most amount of gameplay hours in this chapter out of all of the chapters so far. How about you? I didn't track the time and also my clock is a little bit skewed from when I just set the controller down because I have to take care of my kid. So the, yeah. there's certain times where it's like, oh, this has been running for 45 minutes in the pause screen and it is tracking that time. So I don't know what my actual clock is at, but it definitely felt like this was the highest concentration of run over there, do a thing, run back, quests, taking up a lot of travel time, and also the highest concentration of aggroing annoying monsters, maybe more yes. so than Gar planes. So uh, definitely it felt like the biggest chunk of time was spent here. I probably technically have spent more time in Gar planes because of the revisiting of it a few times now. Sure. Yeah, uh, that, that makes sense. Uh, all right. So we cross uh, the pass into Satoral Marsh. According to the Bionis map, this is roughly in the midsection somewhere. Bionis's liver, maybe? I don't know. Um, but it's but it's in that neck of the woods. Um, there are a variety of enemies here. There are Yupos, which are those salamanders with anglerfish angles. Nebulas, which are those elemental clusters. Flammies, um, which are like flamingos. Coppice quadwings, which are four-winged owls with menacing red eyes. Uh, detox brogs. Brogs are big monstrous frogs, mist rogules, which are harpy eagles, uh, more wolves, which are wolves, and uh, we find a new, uh, we'll just call them a, another beastman race, the igna, which are a salamander type. Uh, they uh, stand erect, so they have a variety of classes and armor sets, kind of like the turkin. We find more of those tailed gorilla giants, but they're white now, so they look more like yetis. So, uh, Tyler, when it comes to monsters, has any game ever presented owls to you as menacing and evil things to be slain because i only remember owls being figures of wisdom i'm thinking legend of zelda owl right mm -hmm. this guy who gives you advice on where to go next i'm thinking about wolf's reign the anime where they get stuck in a forest of terrible things and the owl kind of guides them where they need to go i'm always seeing owls as wise i'm sure that's a pretty standard thing in media Yet here we are being menacingly attacked by owls with glowing red eyes. Have you ever seen that before? I don't think so. Not in video games. I can't... Maybe my memory is failing me, but no. And certainly not to the concentration of of owls that we have that we have seen here in Satoral Marsh. There are a ton of them, and there are um, um, high-level ones as well that are nearby and can aggro you as well. I was joking to myself um, when, th when this happened that I haven't really looked at any of my health bars with alarm in recent times, and that includes fighting faced mechons, but then I did once I got aggroed by a level 80 owl, and that was, that was scary. 
That was spooky. And that's something we'll get into later in more detail, but just to quickly point this out is Satoru Marsh has like two modes of at nighttime, everything is more dangerous. You get told that kind of early in the zone. And so those same owls will, if you hit that nighttime timer, mm -hmm. they'll transform right then and there to the level 80 murder you version so they weren't kidding about the danger right i wanted to bring up the igna they remind me of lizard man from soul Calibur. i don't know if you've played that series at all i haven't seen the lizard man lizard man he's a, a series mainstay he's a sword and shield erect lizard that does battle i also think of the lizalfos from zelda so that's not two zelda references in one section but yeah, the the lizards with shields and swords, they give me a feeling of a little bit of like a savage tribal area that I, I can see where we talked about how Homs don't really live anywhere and there's only kind of two colonies left. And there's seems like there's some areas that are more hospitable to us then I don't know if there's savage tribes out there of beast men that are have their own little settlements then that's interesting to me and how that those tribes don't really get folded into the greater society of Bionis like do do all Igna attack Nopon on site or are there Nopon that get along with the Igna that's something I'm curious about we need to talk about the environment of Satoru Marsh because it's very, very unique. When we entered the marshland, um, we were treated to these enormous crystal formations that sprout out of the rocks that border uh, the marsh and create like a canopy of cobalt around the zone's edges. The air here feels damp and humid. There are reeds that cover the ground. There are pools of swampy water. Some of these ponds are poisonous, but at night, the leafless birch trees that appear quite commonly in this area become aglow with light. The branches release wafts of shimmering white balls of light that rise gently off the tree and drift into the night. And then another feature of the night in this swamp is that there are these curtains of fluorescent pink and blue steam. They're kind of like auroras, but at ground level, and they gently curl off the land, rising up in translucent sheets at soft angles and disappear into the atmosphere above. It's very colorful, atmosphere atmospheric and it would even be a romantic experience too if it weren't for the um, high-level monsters that populate the night. It's interesting because in this world where do day and night come from? I would imagine that we're sitting on essentially a world on top of a world, right? And so there's some source of light, a sun that's traveling around the bigger world and puts us in a nighttime. Whatever, for whatever reason, the the trees light up with these glowing luminescent branches. This energy is coming out of the ground. I wonder if this might be something we they talk about later, but you know, we picture Bionis as this like stone statue, this dead thing that we're all now living on top of, but it, it gives me the impression that it too has like a day and night cycle of being awake and being asleep because its state changes with the hours of the day. Mm. You know, because I would imagine that it, it, we're talking about Bionis. This is a, even the name is a reference to a biological creature. I have to imagine that everything on it is some sort of facet of it. So trees, I don't picture those as foreign entities that have landed on the body of the Bionis and taken root. I picture them as part of the Bionis, at least the way that I explore this world. I even kind of think of Homs the same way, is that they're there to serve some sort of function to the being that they're living on. 
So with that being the case, it, it feels to me like there is still a, a system of life that cycles uh, the same way we as humans do every day. Yeah, you hear a similar concepts in astronomy where we're all just stardust. Humans, humans and all life are just stardust that woke up and started thinking. On the mode of dust, suspended in a sunbeam. It's gorgeous. It's a very pretty place. Yeah, I was I was kind of smitten with it. I was depressed when I first entered the zone. I was like, all right, we got to get the dingy swamp zone out of the way. And I was there for a little bit, and then nighttime hit, and I was like, oh, damn, wait, wait a second. This is enjoyable. And the music, too, is very peaceful and... Enchanting. Yes, peaceful and enchanting. I, I enjoyed the presentation of this zone. It, it, it had more depth than I initially gave it credit for when I stepped into it, so kudos. Yes, I, I would say the same as well. We run into a a couple of Nopon merchants not too far into the swamp, and they have a handful of quests for us. They also have some interesting information to share with us as well. They're the first to say that it's best to not travel at night. Another one says that there are huge statues of Entia here. They're called the Sorol statues. At the right is Katorol, K-H-A-T-O-R-L. And at the left is Soltnor, S-O-L-T-N-O-R, and apparently they are sisters. We don't see them yet, but I guess we'll we'll see them a little farther along uh, in the in the swamp here. I don't know about you, but whenever I write fantasy, I can't help but create deity sisters. It always keeps popping up in my stories. I, I don't know why it is, but that's it, it. Struck me just a little bit personally. I was like, oh, okay, interesting. Yeah. We've got uh, a lot of quests to take in this zone. We don't know it yet because a lot of these are chain quests where you you do one, you come back, you get another one. So they don't dump them all on you at once. As the Nopon are kind of giving us information on the area, like we mentioned before, they say that it is more dangerous at night. So I'm also going to tie this into what I said previously about the fluctuating ecosystem of the Sotoro Marsh. Like, think about it. If there's energy emanating from the branches, emanating from the marsh itself, if energy is flowing through everything in this area and the enemies themselves are getting more powerful at night, have the local monsters found a way to harness the land the same way that the trees and waters do yeah it could be i don't know they are they are decidedly different mobs in the bestiary and so it's not like they're consuming more energy at night and, the, and that and that their stats are improved i think they're implied though to be the same enemy because when if you watch the transition, or there were some times where I was just afraid to encounter certain mobs at night, so I switched uh -huh. it to daytime using the time switch feature, and looking like at the at a branch with one of the crazy-ass uh, owls on it, that, ex the, that exact same mob will change to a different named mob, for sure. It kind of just, it's like flipping a switch. It's the same thing sitting there, just different levels, different enemy description so i don't know if it's a, a ui slash enemy bestiary restriction that they are two separate entities that they mm -hmm. can't just like flip the level they have to create a whole different mob to create that delineation taking in the area i think it's implied that the same monsters are transforming at nighttime the same way the land is yeah that that makes sense when when the mob despawns and the new one respawns they are occupying the same space Th that owl is sitting on the same branch when it disappears and the other one appears so yeah i mean sure you can make that argument one thing i might interject too is just for 
people who were listening to the last episode, during this time, I took Tyler's advice and headed back and did some old Colony 6 quests that I had missed. So I spent a, a little bit of time cleaning things up for anybody who was questioning whether I'm sticking to my dedication to being a completionist. In the spirit of experimentation when doing these side quests here and in the Satoral March, I add Dunbin to my party and I sit Ryan. I did the same thing. I think Shulk, Sharla, Ryan have a good balance, not only from like the party build, but also just the dynamics of their characters. To have the three of them all kind of be the young, scrappy kids trying to figure it out. And I don't know if Sharla's as much of a kid, but she's definitely on the lower end age-wise. I had a good balance about it, but I felt like I needed to experiment with Dunbin and see what he brings to the table. I did too. I was I played as Dunbin for the entirety of this chapter. I like his kit. I like the things you can do with it he has a bleed ability um once you he has a he has a primary ability that unlocks the topple ability and other combo components upon a successful execution of that original ability then he has a taunt or i should say a a reallocation of aggro from another person onto him and uh i i deeply enjoyed playing Dunbin. I think it's a good trio too, as you described. Something else I learned in playing around during this questing phase was how the affinity system works a little bit. And maybe this will be of help to you or any listeners that maybe didn't realize this, or maybe I'm just dumb, but I, I went back in our previous episode, you said that you had unlocked some of the affinity cutscenes with Sharla and Ryan and maybe another one as well, which I hadn't. And that's because I realized you main Sharla through that chapter. And what happens is when you do these side quests, you'll notice there's little hearts popping up between the party leader and people that the party leader interacts with. So you're gaining those affinity points. Me meaning Shulk, that meant that Shulk was gaining affinity points with Ryan, and Shulk was gaining affinity points with Sharla. Oh. But Sharla and Ryan, my two party supporters, were not gaining any affinity with each other throughout this entire process. Mm. So really, you do want to switch characters to build affinity evenly. I did not know that, but that makes sense because I've seen those prompts as well, and but I hadn't figured out that that was what that meant. Yeah, they're not group-wide. They are from party leader to the person personally responding to them, and there are no interactions between party members in those quest affinity gains. So the fact that you main Sharla and did all of those quests is why you had unlocked one. So I've started rebuilding the party a little bit to maximize some of that. I also missed a button in the past that had a, a gifting system. So I played around with that to build some of the affinity up a little bit. I went back and I unlocked those same cutscenes of the Charla Ryan conversation. Nothing too monumental about it. Still more hints of Ryan being Gadult-esque and her essentially saying you remind me so much of my dead boyfriend you know <laughs> so that's interesting to me but that one was fairly easy to ace like you said mm-hmm. another thing i'll note that the entire time i was doing some of these backtracking quests it was raining in the colony six slash gar plains area without fail no matter where i went it was raining all the time and during that entire deluge of water charla is begging for a shower after every other 
other fight, I think I got a dozen or more requests for she could really use a shower right now. I could really do with a shower right now. Despite being theoretically soaked from head to toe from spending hours out in the rain. Amazing. It's it's a little weird. It's that interaction of maybe them talking too much, like we talked about before, sharing too much after every single instance of combat or exploration. Mm-hmm. I'm also backtracking and I'm hunting down every handshake icon I can to see what new ones I have with Dunbin in the mix. And I notice there's a throbbing heart eyes level conversation between Dunbin and Sharla that I do not have access to yet. And I'm wondering, okay, is there a romance system in this game? And the the deeper I thought about it, I have to say no, because you also have the option to go throbbing hard eyes conversations with the other guys in the party. And if that were the case, I'm pretty sure that back in 2010, with the state of the internet then, we would have heard some sort of outrage if there were male-to-male romance options in a JRPG. It strikes me as the kind of thing that would have stood out in that age of the internet, maybe not today. So now I'm going to say the throbbing heart eyes emoji is just a very, very good friendship, a, a closeness that they've attained through battle, but is not implying anything else. I noticed that uh, it helps with gem forging as well. I completed a quest that, that was several zones in length. Did you get this quest in Colony 9 where you're picking up the pieces of a woman's dead son and you find them and you return them to her yes i did right so back in the marsh above a poison pond we find a cave it's it's a secret area where there's a glowing pond of psychedelic colors that churns quietly um here we find the nicked knife which is the third and last thing we needed for this quest at which point i returned to colony nine and i think it was the first time i returned it to colony nine after uh leaving it in chapter three i teleport back there um i speak with the npc she gives me a, a pretty nice uh weapon from ryan and then since I'm here, I do some gem crafting. And that's when I noticed how you get more opportunities to improve the percentage of gem quality according to the relationship status between the, the shooter and the operator. Oh, and one more thing I'll say about gem crafting now that we're on this tangent. In one of Shulk's skill trees, he has a passive buff to gem crafting if he's the shooter. And it's like he has an increased probability of getting a fever and a fever is like crit status. <laughs> I don't understand it completely but it's something like that and um and so i forged a lot of gems um for the most part uh tier two but some of them were tier three nice i'll have to look into that i didn't think of going to the gem guy again and I might need to look into gems more because I'm getting, I mentioned it before that I don't have enough gems and I'm looking at the list of gems I have now mm. and it's a lot of weird stuff that the quests are giving me and not just straight like defense, strength you, you know, things that, the most interesting one I got was a chance to multi-hit and I was like, oh I didn't even know multi-hit was a possibility so I need to look into that a little bit more and play around with it to see if there's some really stellar stuff I can pop out. I also return to colony nine for that same quest and it gave me rank three with colony nine so once you do that you get a whole new batch of side quests in colony nine so yet again i am delayed by side questing which we talked about maybe this chapter taking too long again i don't know if i spent all of it in the marsh it might have been some of these crazy side quests that pop up i'm not going to get into them too deeply because they're not that important to the overall story they're just more flavor except there is one that involves an argument between two Two kids on who is the strongest and hottest between Shulk and Ryan. Oh boy. A young girl, Paola, is Team Ryan, and Nareen says he's small brain. <laughs> 
and Dixon would agree. Yeah, that's the only one that really gave me any interest other than the typical, you know, helping out the locals. And it's all good. I'm not criticizing it. It's just nothing really of note. That's pretty interesting, Nate. Uh, I did not unlock those quests, so you're, you're a little farther in that than I am. That's pretty neat there. Also, on the way out of Colony 9, I have to note that the door to Dunman's house has now left completely ajar. He's, in theory, halfway across the world, and... His door is open, yet when he was home, it was shut without letting anyone in. I think this guy needs to investigate his door priorities. It's when you leave the house that you lock the door. Yes, that's that's irresponsible of them. But then again, there is a relationship cutscene in there too. That doesn't include Dunben, as far as I can tell. Yeah, that's a little curious to me. The relationship cutscenes, when I think of the location, I'm like, all right, who could be in on this? And then it tells you, yeah, you don't have any of these guys. I'm like, wait, how many characters are there? Yeah, we're seeing that more often than you think. So there were a lot of quests here, and another one that I think is worth sharing is that one of the Nopon merchants has this friend named Kacha who was carried off by a squad of Ignis, and they're at Exile Fortress, which is this um, citadel carved into the top of a rock at this at this large plateau in the middle of the marsh there. And uh, you can go up the normal way and aggro a throne room full of Igna and die like I did. But there's another way in. I found a rear entrance key, climbed up a viney wall, uh, entered the back entrance, and snuck into that same throne room through a moving wall right next to that nopon that I needed to save. And once you speak with a nopon, that component of the quest is complete, and then you slip right back out again. It is a much easier way to do it. Yeah, that quest was really interesting in that it opens up some more questions from saving that nopon. Apparently, that for fortress was not built by the Igna, it's just occupied by them. And there's a group of enemies, like you said, but there's also a, a boss character behind that group of Igna, and his name is Aggressive Cornelius. <laughs> I forget what was the one from the previous chapter, there was... I, I forget the first word, but it was something Gonzalez. I immovable? Immovable Gonzalez, yes. Yeah, I think so. And so I'm quickly coming to the realization, maybe I should have noticed this earlier, but basically there's these elite boss characters throughout every zone that you can kind of hunt down and kill, and all of them are trait and then generic human name. <laughs> so I, I tried the front door, I died at the front door. I will say that later in the chapter, I think over this whole chapter, I gained about six levels. Yeah, me too. And doing all the stuff I did, maybe more even. So I was actually able to return later and do it, but I did it with Shulk in the party. I benched Dunbin because I feel like he doesn't offer the same defensive utilities. He's fun to play, but he doesn't have the same the Monado saves that Shulk does. And when you don't have Shulk in your party to deal with some of those things, and you're getting those uh, premonitions of you're going to die left and right... I it, it gets overwhelming sometimes where you get them like three of them back to back. And you're like, okay, let me just actually die now because this is so annoying. Mm -hmm. Nate, in this chapter, I had my first one shot. Really? It was awesome. It was awesome. Let me, I got a war story for you. Okay, so I'm doing a triple attack. It's got, it's got Dunbin. Oh, oh, hold on. This is interesting, actually. So um, the way in which your party members are ordered in the menu is the way your triple attack is going to execute. You want Sharla 
in the middle or in the front so she can set up a sleep dart for someone else to do a monster attack on. And once I thought of that, I attacked one of those bunnets. There are bunnets here too, but they have like straight up clubs now. They're not picking up like pieces of rocks or pieces of trees or whatever. Like they're actually holding weapons now. They might as well be a beastman race like the Ignis. Anyways, um, I run into one of them. Um, I do a triple attack. Dunbin finishes one of them. So, so rule out Dunbin's damage in this one shot. Charlotte does a does a sleep dart and then I have Shulk do a Monado empowered overhand the over the head line strike. Uh, I can't remember the name of it. It's basically Shulk's most powerful attack and and it completely one shot that bonus health bar and I hadn't seen that before. In, in a, I hadn't seen, I mean you can do that with like lower level enemies but for like an enemy in the neck of the woods you should be in in a, in a zone that you're currently leveling in, that hadn't happened to me before and it was pretty neat. Yeah, I, did, I guess I didn't think of the party order being important to the chain attack i'll have to investigate that because some of my chain attacks fall flat they do three generic moves and they do a little bit extra damage but nothing big so i'll have to consider that one. Mm-hmm. so tyler when we rescue the little nopon from the back door without engaging the giant Igna crew. We rescue Kacha, is his name, and we take him back to the trader camp at the beginning of the zone. He lets us know that he, quote, spilled the beans to the Igna about a sacred treasure. Now, this also tells me that the Igna can talk and that they have relationships of some nature with Nopon if they're kidnapping them and squeezing them for information. So, again, this earlier sentiment I had of how do these other beastmen races interact with each other? There's a layer there that the game isn't really diving all that much into but we have to ask the question but the information that was gleaned from the nopon by the igna was that the sacred treasure of the giants rests on top of the fortress now i don't know that i've heard of giants before this other than the one we're currently walking on top of are, are you aware of any other giants tyler no i wondered if it might be the hyentia i don't have any idea how big or small this race is although there are colossal statues nearby no i no i don't know of any other other giants yeah so to prevent the igna from getting this sacred treasure we're gonna go get it ourselves it requires a key it requires going through another back passage and climbing up the fortress again sneaking behind the giant guy sitting on his throne (laughs) deeper into the fortress and then we get up there and quests over because we can't actually open the cache it requires a special item we need to go back to the nopon and tell him well turns out i had the item in my inventory the whole time it was a mirror i acquired from gar planes at a different location so i have the key i could have opened it if i just known that that was what it needed. Conventionally, you would fight a white spider elite in Gower Plains. The, the Nopon will send you out to, to find it, and then you defeat the monster. But Nate, I guess you already took care of it. Yeah, yeah, I guess I didn't... <laughs> Some of these things, I just, I target them and I start hitting them. I realize, oh my gosh, this is actually an elite creature. Okay, cool. So yeah, I kill the white spider before. And now when I access the treasure this time, they give me the treasure and I'm swarmed by three spiders that if I do not leave, they will murder me. I tried fighting them and I lost health so fast. I'm like, nope, gotta get out of here. I I jumped the fuck off the, the fortress. <laughs> nice. I noped out. I did, I did what I did at the beginning of chapter two. 
So that kind of wraps up that little quest line. A little bit of a hint of more races, but nothing really substantial to hang our hat on for that. It's interesting. Getting a little bit of flavor of more races, more areas, and not just big empty marsh. There's civilizations of some sort going on here. What was the giant's treasure after all? It's a great question. Hold on. Didn't they say they were just testing us or there was some twist to it, wasn't there? All right, we'll look it up. Post-production Tyler will figure it out. Don't worry about it. Well, hello, pre-production Tyler and Nate. All right, so for this quest, we earned a key item called the Daring of the Giants, like truth or dare. We don't know what to do with it yet, but we do have it. Okay, sounds good. Okay. I also find a Nopon in a cave called Zazadan. Mm -hmm. He has side quests. He has so many side quests, and I'm getting sick of running back to this cave. The teleportation site is not terribly close to it he's very out of the way yeah through that whole process I, there is something positive that comes out of it you said you mained dunbin this whole chapter after i switched to shulk to take care of business i kind of forgot to switch back so throughout all of zazadan's quests i went from being green affinity to ryan to now shulk and ryan have heart eyes affinity for each other oh yeah i don't know when it happened like it was a just a massive leap of we were green and then all of a sudden we're maxed out so i guess i have to give zazadan credit for helping us discover the ultimate bromance as we advance through the marsh we're seeing more and more high entia structures um they have ruins throughout this place but predominantly in the eastern half of it we encounter the altar of fate which is a white stone gathering area built on top of a large rock in one of the swampy ponds and at the end of this gathering area is an altar with four snowflakes flake like hieroglyphic depressions it looks like something you'd gems into like like that little like that console at the temple of time and an ocarina of time it, it, it it's it's something like that you, you're obviously going to be putting these relics into it but we don't have any and there's no button prompts to say that you can interact with it so we move on i also take note of a location called the place of judgment yes at it sits a statue of a symmetrical angular shaped angelic defense poised on a downward thrust sword that description makes any sense feeling a connection to mech design of xeno gears in its appearance I, I don't know if you do some of the later mechs oh absolutely it looks like xeno gears you guys it's a xeno gear it looks like if you took xeno gears and said hey make this a little bit more of like a magical knight instead of a gundam mech or an angel from the diablo series yes nate it crossed my mind that we're seeing Xenogears references like all over the place. And of course, Xenoblade is connected to uh, Xenogears in, in spiritual sort of ways. But but as as we see these sort of references where, where we're like, that statue, it looks like Xenogears. Is Xenogears to us what Among Us is to like Gen Zers where we go like, where they go Among Us and we just go Xenogus. I don't know. It, it makes me think of the jokes people tell of like, holy crap, somebody made a whole movie out of that guy from Fortnite, you know, the kids that think that Fortnite characters started in Fortnite and then they became something else. So I could see it as being the case. I'm constantly 
kind of conflicted on are they trying to draw a connection is it just for the sake of the fun of it of saying you know hey this kind of looks like this isn't that interesting are they intentionally doing it or is it maybe even unintentional that just the group of people working on these games their design language is so solidified that they can't help make those connections one thing i'll say is that supposedly xenogears xenosaga are not related at all but one of the first things you see in xenosaga is the giant i want to call it like the giant golden credit card the zohar modifier zohar modifier i was gonna say zohan but don't mess with the zohar so i am ready to cut out today so let's go let's get it done (laughs) the um it's it's almost like again i've heard that xenosaga is kind of a reimagining or a reinterpretation of you know now the creator is going to really get to do everything he wanted to do because he has his own company that's great but i would also feel like it's too intentional to have the exact same imagery and i think in looking at a couple details of xenoblade chronicles 2 not that i'm really digging into any of these details more so things i'm remembering from playing like smash brothers Mm -hmm. i think i've seen that same shape of the zohar represented on a character from that game so either the creator just really loves it and he likes reusing it and figures hey what the heck or there is an intentional connection here i don't know i i guess it really doesn't matter in the long run but it's fun as we continue through these ruins we find the glowing obelisk it's a relic of the high entia it's a tall white spire with a glowing lamp at the top of it and according to dixon we are going to sleep here like we slept in that cave what was the name of that cave? Tefra Cave. Like we slept in Tefra Cave. I don't feel very sleepy. I don't think we should be sleeping in this marshland. Bad idea, Dixon, but we're going to do it anyways. It's just window dressing to have a one-on-one conversation between Dixon and Shulk. But before that happens, um, we have a flashback to Fiora's death, angry metal face, and then the uh, the voice line, you will know the pain and suffering you have caused the Emperor and Fiora coming from Shulk. And then from the mystery man, do you wish to change it the future? With the flashback over, Dixon and Shulk are speaking with one another. Dixon says he remembers that 14 years ago, I found you on that mountain. It seems like yesterday. And maybe you and the Monado are part of some higher plan, he says. And all the while, I hear this loud sighing sound. I owe it all to you. If you hadn't found me that day, I wouldn't be here now discovering the world. Forgive me, Shulk. Sorry I couldn't save you folks. I don't know if it's a part of the environmental music or what, but I remember in this cutscene, some weird heaving was going on in the background. It wasn't music. It was some sort of ambient noise. Did you hear like heavy sighing in the background of this? Don't actually know that I did. What is this sighing sound? I was, I was just asking myself that. Yeah. I don't know that I heard a sighing sound. I was playing this on a smaller TV with the sound a little bit down at this point in the day due to various reasons so i may have missed it just from the audio quality i was dealing with at that time it, it might be a intentional element to the cutscene. maybe it's by honest hey we're saying you you're suspecting maybe it's alive we are near its lungs we'll find out a little bit later one thing i'll note about this scene tyler is previously on an earlier episode we talked about how old is shulk well via the affinity window i 
found that I can actually find out these details about the characters. Shulk is 18 years old. Okay. So it means that during that expedition where we see a full-grown body on the floor, that even in this re-examination of that scene of Dixon finding Shulk, that is not a four-year-old on the ground. I assure you that. No, it's not. Beyond that, who would take a four-year-old on an expedition? Desperate people. Yeah, I guess so. It, it raised a lot of questions for me that they, again, they reiterated as 14 years ago i'd kind of forgotten that detail i remember asking you about it i was like wait was that 14 years ago and then here we were they reconfirmed it for us i think this scene uh, it has a important element that i've been questioning we brought it up a couple times of shulk's motivation what's driving him and he reveals that he sees the monado as the last gift his parents left him so they passed away dixon laments that he wasn't able to save the parents too who knows what actually happened in that scene because Dixon showed up later. He wasn't with the initial party from what I can tell. Shulk sees this connection to the Monado as his last remnant of a connection to his parents and it's a means of fulfilling their wishes potentially and giving him purpose. So I now have a puzzle piece that maybe I didn't have before when it comes to Shulk and his motivation. We saw him in that lab obsessing over it. He's We see him obsessing over discovering its powers, unlocking it, and you know, we had that initial drive, the kind of outer layer imposition of, you need to discover these things because it'll help save people's lives, but now we have a more core character motivation when it comes to who Shulk is and why he does what he does. Absolutely. The party regathers from their nap, and Shulk again reiterates that he did not sleep a wink. And it's funny that you brought up Tefra Cave as a bad place for sleeping, because the same thing happened here. They failed to actually get any sleep, at least for one of their party members. So I'm going to recommend, like you, just stop sleeping at random outposts. This obelisk offers no shelter whatsoever. Well, they do mention, this is actually an interesting plot point, potentially, they mention that the light of the High Entia on top of it is able to repel monsters they do say that yeah yeah i don't know if it's true like can i pull an enemy here and they will immediately recoil and run somewhere else are there any enemies nearby i guess i didn't test it out that is an interesting note of they said the high entia used to occupy these areas but they retreated to the head they used to have technology that created safe havens all over bionis there are nine colonies so to speak but we only have two now lots of questions it would be cool if you dragged a bunnet over to the obelisk and you got within range and it fires a disintegration ray and makes it explode. Do you ever play Command and Conquer? Yes. I'm thinking of the Tesla coil. Did you ever build one of those? Sure did. They were one of my favorite items in that game to uh, build up just a sea of Tesla coils in your base and watch the enemy disintegrate as they got near. Up the river, we encounter a gate or an ornate dam made of polished white stone and metal bars shaped like crystals. It's called the Mock Floodgate, M-A-U-K. On the other side is a big, open, circular, waterlogged area, and it's perfect for a boss battle, but no boss battle ever comes. And I'm going to note here a little clever technique. I don't know if it's intentional or if it just happened to work out this way. As you ascend that river path and you pass through the gate, the single opening cleverly pulls your camera down because there is geometry in the way that they can't let your camera be up in the sky looking down on your characters. As I typically do, I pull my camera further out to get a wider scope of things 
things to avoid enemies I don't want to fight. This door forces my camera down and under the gate through the geometry, and I'm now looking upward towards the statues, the, the giant gate before me, and it frames the scene in a way that you're kind of forced to take notice of its imposing size. As I mentioned taking over the camera, I'm thinking back to Xenogears and how there were lots of opportunities where Takahashi would take the camera and frame shots in interesting ways to highlight the things he wants to, for you to see. But in a fully 3D game with more camera freedom and world freedom, exploration freedom than past games, that's a little bit difficult to do in some cases. So I think there's a clever use of his technique here. Again, I don't know if it's intentional, but I was just kind of struck of like, wow, this is a really great moment. Yes, these statues are on the far side of this arena. They are on either side of this large facade, and the facade is very temple-like. It's polished white stone like all of the other high Antia ruins we've seen so far, but very, very ornate. There is a teleporter in the center and a long upraised platform that extends out from the end to the center of the arena that we're in, with the end kind of pointed towards us, towards that door in the gate we just passed through. The statues themselves look like Roman women. They are wearing robes. They are goddess-like. Um, they're holding these bowls up over their heads and two symmetrical waterfalls uh, from high above spill down into those bowls and then splash off to, their, to the outside of each of those uh, statues. It's very majestic and even holy in some sort of way. Like we, we've entered this, this hallowed place, a, a temple, a, a place very carefully crafted, a place of cultural significance to the Hyentia. It's really pretty. It's great. So as we approach the gate, there is a cutscene that plays where pretty much everyone but our playable cast agrees to return to the colonies to aid survivors and bolster defense. Whether it's Colony 6, you've got the survivors there. Colony 9, there's talk of increasing the defenses there. Dixon is going to go back to Colony 9. Otheron and Juju are going to go back and rebuild Colony 6, which opens up its own little side quest system that Tyler might dive into here in a minute. As they're parting ways, everybody kind of agrees that it's for the best. You notice that the only ones moving forward on the journey are the characters that you are able to take direct control of. Dixon says to Ryan, buck up your ideas. Ideas. You, on the other hand, need to buck up your ideas. How else are you going to protect Shulk? Wow. We heard the kids talk about how Ryan has small brain, and so maybe, you know, he's he's got the muscle, but uh, Dixon is saying you need to develop your ideas muscles. What does that even mean? I, I don't know. Stop thinking with your bicep. He also lets slip that he's deceiving us. Can't say I feel so good about deceiving these kids. What's that you say? Oh, just mumbling. Forget I said anything. In that case, I'm not sure who he was speaking to because he clearly said it out loud and he almost said it in a way that you're like, okay, well, maybe he was just talking to himself. But Atheron asks, hey, what did you say? Dixon responds with, eh, forget it. Never mind. As if he originally did say it to be heard and then decided maybe I better not say it. So there's something going on here. Again, we talked about this, the episode where the colony gets attacked by the Mechon in the first place. We saw that shot of Dunbin looking out 
out his window at the boys departing Colony 9 and Dixon nearby at the front door and both of them looking very contemplative. And we said, hey, there's a deeper element to these guys going on. And I'm still feeling that way with this comment of us being deceived by Dixon. The direct quote is, can't say I feel good about deceiving those kids. So what is he deceiving them about? Well, the principal thing is pointing them in the direction to Bionis' head. Prison Island. Are we headed to prison? Are, is, the, are the, is the secret to unlocking the true power of the Monado not at Prison Island? Are we, what's in store for us there? It might be really bad, but hey, we don't know anything about it. Authoron is not inquisitive enough to get to the bottom of it, and we just sort of move on. I have to wonder, is Dunbin now in our party some sort of plant? He's there to help us and lead us on our quest, but maybe Dunbin being there to help us is the deception. Following that, we get a text box on our screen prompting us with this new gameplay mechanic um, in which we are invited to help reconstruct Colony 6. Maybe there's something we can do to help. And so I teleport out of here. I go back to Colony 6 and we're able to access the broken dome uh, that we saw earlier. Inside it's total rubble, um, but there are wheat fields outside and Nopon merchants. I think they're the same ones I saw earlier that, that Nate missed, but refound. We speak with Authoron. The first step is to clear the bridge in Gower Plains of hoxes, those horned foxes, so that the refugee camp residents can make their way back to Colony 6, and that was quite a fiasco because they are in huge clusters. I had problems with that fight too, and I was four levels over the supposed level of these hoxes. I don't know why they were kicking the crap out of me. I get that there's a lot of them, but I ended up having to kill one, run away, kill another one, run away sequentially, other than trying to take it all at once. And once you once you complete that quest, you get an experience plus gem, AP plus gem, which I haven't seen before and would probably be pretty strong in the right hands. Uh, in another quest, a woman next to a 30 foot tall glowing green tuning fork wants to build a chemist and has a fetch quest for me. And then another one uh, wants to bless the earth at Colony 6 for Bionis' goodwill. He says, go find dynamite in the mine and then blast it off of Spiral Valley where immovable Gonzalez is. It, it grants us access to another part of the spiral there and, and then we're, there we can grab the stone. There are a few more quests, but one of them leads us into a forest zone that I haven't been to yet. And so that's kind of where everything stopped for me as far as reconstructing Colony 6. I just spent so much time in this chapter doing side quests that I think I'm good and I'm ready to move forward, access the next chapter. I double checked to make sure none of them were time sensitive and I just let them sit. Sure. That's just fine. <laughs> Sounds good. I was struck by how Colony 6 is completely totaled in every conceivable way. And I also felt like I had a bigger image of what Colony 6 was in my head, bigger scope for it. But then I have to remember this was a Wii game, so it probably was impressive at the time. But I, I was a little bit disappointed of walking into just a pile of rubble. It looks totally bombed out. It looks like a World War One battlefield. Getting back to the main quest, we now have our core party ready to move forward. It's Shulk, Ryan, Sharla, Dunbin. Three guys, one girl. To scale this gate, we find a little Nopon who has some helpful advice. We need to make an offering and the path will open up before us. Nothing too detailed except that I already have the majority of the items needed for the offering because we've been scouring the zone for content up to this point. We just have to grab one more thing nearby and giving that offering 
ring of ancient items summons forth a giant bird. It's more like a griffin, actually. Yeah, a green harpy called the Satoral Guardian. There was also, I should mention, in the Satoral Marsh, there was another elite griffin character who I managed to incidentally aggro like 30 times and get killed by once. That was pissing me off. I know exactly who you're talking about. It is called the Sunlight Shivayak. I don't know if that's some word I don't know. That's not a normal English language surname. He's circling an area called the Dark Swamp that drains your health if you're in it. I just had to point out that this bird was driving me nuts. So I was glad to actually kill one of them in the story content. Yeah, he's like a mini boss. He's not even a proper boss. And I take him out without much trouble at all. Yeah, same here. I think all the content we've been digesting, he's now outleveled him for sure. When it comes to your optional content, they don't mind handing you challenges because you can just not do it. But when it comes to all the main quest content that you have to do, everything's very under level, incapable of doing anything significant to us for the most part. Once we beat him fairly simply, a set of stairs appears to rise. We get to the top and find out that the lift is broken. So we have to climb the giant wall anyway, even after giving the offering and killing the thing. Could have just slimed it anyway. I don't know. The ritual worked, but the teleporter is disabled. And maybe that's was done by the people above the High Entia to keep people from following them on their journey. Not sure. Maybe it's just old. Not really given any details on that. So we need to scale the, the side of the gate and it's conveniently has a lot of moss across its entire surface for us to climb on. There's one characteristic of the statues that I I failed to mention in my description of it earlier. Um, These women have headdresses in the shape of two eagle wings on their heads. I can't tell you if it's a fancy hat or if they have proper wings coming out of their heads. They're prominent. And that's the same as the angel statue, the place of judgment. We saw the same thing on that statue as well. Yeah, that's that's worth mentioning. It's a it's a major feature of these statues here. I have another climbing note here. Watching Dunbin climb one-handedly is amazing because when he's walking around, when he's battling, he still has one arm tucked into his cloak. and But he's also climbing completely vertical walls with one hand as well. And it, it's just astonishing to watch. He does it like he's reaching for something high up in the cupboard. It's completely effortless. And I'm not so sure he's not the child of destiny after all. He is a badass. And I gave him the gear appearance. I tried to make him look as vampire. No, not vampire. Vampire slayer as I could. He's got a very Victorian appearance to him in the gear I chose. All of his gear kind of does, but some more than others. He looks like a character that would slip right into a Castlevania game, ready to slay monsters of all kinds, especially with that samurai sword. He's also now, whether it's his default gear or some of the other choices they give you, he's giving the one-armed samurai character archetype that you see throughout popular Japanese media. They give him a lore reason for being that, in that his arm was damaged by the Monado, but you can see this archetype in other JRPGs you may have played. For example, Final Fantasy X, there is Oron, who despite having two fully functional arms, one of them sits inside of Jacket the entire time, and he wields his samurai sword with a single arm. And you might not think that Oron's swords look very much like samurai swords, but he has all of the traditional moves of samurai.
samurai from the Final Fantasy series. Yeah. I like Dunbin a lot. He's a he's a cool guy. I just need to figure out how to utilize him better. I did a challenge in Nopon World in the challenge mode with him where I was feeling some of his abilities, but in that mode where they kind of curate the content for you, they move your bars around. So <laughs> I found that w- when they have the setup for you, they have the, the initial ability in his chain attack on one end of the bar and then the respond abilities on the complete other end of the bar. So I found it a little annoying there, but when I created my own Dunbin experience via rearranging his hot bars, he's a lot of fun. That's crap. What kind of nonsense is that? Come on, game. When we get to the top of the tower, we have one last cutscene before we enter. Or I don't know. I call it a tower. Is it a tower, a gate, a wall? A cliff? A temple? Whatever. We'll, we'll go with something. All of those kind of work. So we have one last cutscene where I'm just going to sum it up as saying Shulk stops and asks Dunbin if he can officially be Monado Boy. <laughs> Shulk is like, you know what? That that was great. Really want to make it official. Can I be Monado Boy? Monado Boy. I'm joking, of course. That is not the content of this cutscene. Shulk asks Dunbin if it's okay if he keeps the Monado for now. I'd like to ask your permission to use it a little longer. Why ask me? The Monado was your sword, but... I need it to achieve my goal. I think it would have been a foregone conclusion due to the fact that it isn't currently eating away at his flesh and Dunman is half of a man because of it. But hey, it's he's being polite. Gotta give him props for that. My question is, is the Monado Dunbin's to give? That's a very good question because Dunbin was wielding it, but I think in that earlier cutscene with Dixon and Shulk and the circumstances that brought the Monado to Colony 9, I'm gonna go with no. I think it is a... I don't, I don't really know Shulk's last name, if he has a last name, or it is the Shulk family heirloom at this point. Dunbin just says, yes, you can have it to improve his reputation points with Shulk. And he says he's got the the cool new sword that uh, Dixon made as well. So again, I hate to be repetitive. They held back before. Now Dunbin's in our party. He's equipped with Dixon's gear. Dixon's dropping lamentations of betrayal. I don't know. There's a whole lot of elements that I, it's like a powder keg I'm waiting to burst to find out what's the real deal going on here. Mm -hmm. We hear that there's a forest in front of us, but we cross into the next zone and it is not exactly a forest. The name of this new area is called Terminal Trachea. It is a fungal cave. We're hit with several different fungi in our immediate environment. There's brush-like fungi on the ground, fungi columns from floor to cave ceiling, tree like fungi with white bulbs, reed-like fungi with pockmarked holes and releasing green vapor. There's glowing green tumors on the walls and dangling green illuminating fungi that hang above us. And Shulk says he feels weird in this area. He says he feels like Bionis isn't really dead. And I thought a vision was going to come on because he's like reeling and doing like, what's, uh, I'm feeling weird here. But no vision comes. Ryan does buck up on his ideas here. Buck up your ideas. He has the idea that, hey, if the Bionis isn't really dead, we're kind of screwed. That was a nice little observation from Ryan. I like that this game does a good job of having its occupants not be completely oblivious to the details of the world. There's some other properties within media generally where characters, in order to establish that connection to the viewer, player, reader, whatever, they have to have things spelled out to them as a proxy of having things spelled out to you. Really, you can just have the characters observe and be intelligent instead of being the greenhorn that you need to 
personally identify with. So when I walked in here, I didn't actually think anything about Bionis, Death, Alive, etc. And it was just a nice little tidbit to have them elaborate on that. As I think about it more, if I was in a trachea or a lung and there was this much shit attached to it floating around, I think I might have a problem, right? Yeah, maybe. It's called the terminal trachea. We're considering it a terminal as a means of transitioning from one area to the next, but terminal is also a condition of being near death, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe the, maybe this is a bad trachea. Maybe all this fungus shouldn't be in here. Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. There are no enemies in here. I think that's interesting to note. This zone isn't very big. It's about five or six rooms just packed with fungus of different kinds. I think we do see a Nopon who directs us to stand in an orange pool of water where a column of air blasts us a thousand feet into the air through a vertical channel in the cave and then we land in another room also covered in fungi and then the exit is nearby. When we're blasted in the air we conveniently decelerate at the last second at the very top because if we didn't our brains would have been splattered across the roof so <laughs> I don't know if there's some air pressure element element that regulates that, that results in that deceleration, because the walls do not slow down as you near the top. You do not uh, lose any of your momentum as you fly up. It's just all speed, and then boom, you're there. Bionis is looking out for us. So walking out that tunnel is going to conclude the chapter for our player characters, but we have another scene, Tyler. It's a doozy. I'm becoming accustomed to these revelation deliveries. I like it. I think they're being paced out and delivered at just the right frequency to keep me interested and be like oh damn now i want to play the next chapter so i'm very entertained by these what's the term in fiction we have omniscient perspective we're allowed into the enemy base we're allowed to see what they're up to as players we don't have to experience everything through the perspective of character personally so they drop some pretty significant bombs in some of these this cutscene begins with an establishing shot of metal face soaring through the air towards Mechanus. And then we cut to a hallway. I guess it's the interior of Mechanus somewhere. It's a laboratory and there's a large light blue pod in a big laboratory room. Inside, there's a humanoid robot. It's very angelic. I don't know if it's a Hyentia or what. So we have a figure, a, a I, it's hard to describe what we're seeing. We haven't really seen anything, but in this lab, a figure is at work. It's a, a black mechanical looking figure, but different than any mechon we've seen before. But I'm going to hazard a guess this is a mechon, and they are the person constructing this mechon within the blue tank. Around the tank, there are these golden interfaces that seem to suggest there's a lot of moving parts and details that go into assembling this. But then we see what would seemingly be a hom being inserted into the mechon. We get that confirmation in that there's a quick shot of a fleshy face of an orange-haired, I'm gonna say female, resting behind a white helmet that is obscuring 90% of that. But I'm I'm seeing flesh and I'm going to assume Hom. They are eventually fully encased within the Mechon frame. And then we get the dialogue that comes next from the black figure. We get the dialogue, base nemesis. 
Your frame is complete. All that remains is the soul transfer. A crest glows on the mech's chest. While she's assembling this mechon hom hybrid, is what I'm going to call it, there, one of the gold monitors on her side, there's a assessment of Metal Face's damage. The host, as I'm going to call them, the mech in black, questions the existence of a weapon capable of damaging face armor. <laughs> I, d I don't know where we've mentioned face nemesis, we've mentioned face armor. I'm questioning whether there's some sort of translation quality missing here. Is this a cooler sounding moniker in Japanese or more representational of a greater idea? Because there's just this weird connection to our heroes were the originally the ones that identified these new generation of Mechon as having faces. That was unique and that was just like a an awesome off-handed thing they said hey this is different they have a face what the hell are you a mechon with a face but now from the mechon side of thing their entire ethos about this generation of weaponry revolves around face it's face armor it's being named faces we've got metal face we've got mysterious face we keep finding it funny that this is the reality of their naming the, the rabbit hole just keeps going deeper on us at least I feel like me, I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> Next, we have a red glow that emanates from the hom as a small gold piece is attached to the chest area of the hom figure within the greater mech frame, the face nemesis frame. That red glow, I'm going to go as being the soul transfer that was mentioned earlier, that all that remains is soul transfer so now this Ham soul is seemingly I'm taking guesses here it's not completely spelled out but I think it's heavily implied that there was a Ham inside the frame that soul has been moved to the mech itself I think there's a lot of implications here for everyone we've been fighting there's a fair number of answers for some of those mysterious statements done by Zord slash mysterious face there's some more implications for metal face as well in the end we have confirmation of who our host is here it's lady venea she is wearing black mechon like armor but she also has a seemingly calm or organic face behind it all there's a message that's sent to her that Master Edgel wishes to see her soon. And she says she will join him as soon as she finishes this current project she's working on. Now, Tyler, one other element that kind of stands out to me after looking at all this. There is gear that I've been acquiring in this latest chapter where if I equip it and I actually use the appearance of that gear, it replaces that section of my body with actual mechanical parts. Hmm. So I can put on a pair of boots that takes away my hom feet and puts robot legs there. And you would say, well, maybe it's just robot looking armor around it. It would be completely impossible for the for a hom leg to fit in the frame that is provided. These are like distorted, almost I want to say like goat leg shape things. Okay, yeah, I, I can imagine the form. It changes our form. So again, I wonder, if that, is that just a little fun thing? The ability to like, hey, this looks cool. Let's let our characters whip some robot armor. You know, I'm, I'm almost sure that that 
that's the case, but it does kind of strike me that it's like, okay, wait, there are people running around that might have some Mechon armor as their parts. So I'm going to go with Lady Vinea being an actual recipient of this treatment of being able to equip or transition to this being their physical body. By the way, that armor is called M100 armor. M100 armor. I'll check that out. Yeah, I think it could be both. I think it could be um, just a fun, stylish transmog to play with. And it could also be a new way to apply the core philosophy of the game about biological and mechanical parallels of the world. And one other observation I'm having is that both the figure outside the tube and the figure inside the tube are reminding me of Cosmos from the Xenosaga series. The algorithms I have been programmed with do not support the comprehension of illogical human thought. Oh, sure. He had the same kind of mechanical trappings to a physical body and also had that same kind of mask over the front of her mm -hmm. face when she was in combat. I, I'm feeling a connection there in design for, like I said, both Lady Vanilla and the figure being added to the face frame armor, whatever the hell you want to call it. We're left with one final quote from Lady Vanilla. She says, You and only you can bring about a new age on Mechanus. No, the entire world. My mistress, Lady Maynith. What do you think about that, Tyler? She's addressing the project as Lady Maynith? I believe so, yes. Did you say earlier that this humanoid might have red hair i said orange but yes orange hair i think we're already we're both on the same train of what we're thinking about that one okay because we never saw fiora's grave in colony nine what are the chances yeah exactly and if you go back to that episode it's her remember how i said the mechon were all there for they're raising the colony they're eating people they're on the attack and then there was one specific moment where a thing happened and they all just decided all right, we can leave now. Mm -hmm. I had taken a random guess that maybe the thing that happened was Fiora dying. Maybe she's super special or something and they just needed to kill her because she was going to rise up and become awesome at some point. I was highly speculating the various reasons. Maybe it was Shulk. I actually think I dialed out of that theory too later when it was Zord because our first meeting with Zord, Mysterious Face, he had lost a significant amount of energy to the point where he could no longer keep up his defense from shulk and so then he just flew off himself so i kind of went away from the fiora theory but now we're going with the obvious what we can see on the screen is that is fiora that was put inside of the mechon and there's a person saying that she is the hope for the entire world that's pretty crazy now i'm back on the killing slash acquiring fiora theory that's pretty interesting you know i wonder if we're gonna get a waluigi mechon too <laughs> That would be hilarious. He's going to start barking orders at us to go do our jobs and get in shape. And Ryan's going to have this moment of conscience crisis where he, he has to kill the Mechon, but it was his old boss and they had such a deep connection. Mecha Waluigi would be terrifying. He's got the drive. He's got the motivation. He has the weapon skills. Holy smokes. Final boss material right there. Also, you remember last episode I mentioned a little, little something where I said, 
said we never saw Gattle die either. I'm gonna I'm gonna stick on that train of thought now too because we've just received essentially every based mech on we encounter we have to ask the question who's inside that thing now. It's a Gundam. Yes, it certainly seems like it. That maybe that's our new um mode of thinking. If we don't see them properly die, it's like the cat in the box paradox. If you don't see them die, they are in a mechon or will be. I don't know if that's, that's analogous. Yeah, I'm gonna go with Zord being some sort of old man precursor to all of these events that he he's been around quite a while. Sure. I think it added a new dynamic. If we were originally talking about how these face mechon, they were just these big bads that we just had to hate and kill because you know who gives a shit? They're they're the bad guys. Then we got that theory blown away by oh they're not gonna talk, they're just gonna be evil, and then right away they started talking to us and having terrible voices. And now we have to question who the hell's inside that thing and do I actually want to kill it? Absolutely. And that's how the chapter ends. There's no proper boss unless you count the griffin uh, that we fought at the statues there. I'm kind of all right with that. It was quite, it was a heck of a chapter. There, there was a lot of content, a lot of grinding, a lot of quests to go through. Um, it was a really good chapter and I really enjoyed um, pathing through Satoral Marsh. They they do a really good job with these environments. I love Gaara Plains and now I love the swamp as well. They're definitely delivering all of the gameplay that I felt was lacking from the later two thirds of Xenogears. I like getting out there, exploring, figuring stuff out. The later half of Xenogears felt like hallway runner. So I'm very happy that this game has learned its mistakes and has done its own thing. This has been a production of Hero with a Thousand Potions, recorded February 26, 2022. We have an email, hero with 1000 potions at gmail.com. That's 1000 potions. We're also on Discord and Twitter with the handle hero with a thousand pot. It stands for potions. I'm Tyler and I'm joined with Nate. And Nate, you're really getting into this. I'm really feeling it. Bam. Bam.